0: All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy.
3: Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Gloria Allred. I have spent my career speaking for women's rights and for women and things who can't speak for themselves. I am here today for the latter. I have filed a lawsuit today in Superior Court on behalf of the womb and outer lying areas of a pregnant mother of 19 children, Mormon Michelle Duga. Uh,
4: Miss Orrin, Miss Orrin, on
3: what legal grounds? On the grounds that the um, hoo-ha is very tired and believes it has gone above and beyond its duties according to the original terms of service. Next. Uh,
5: Yes. Are you
4: in contact with her lady business at all? And uh, will the press have access to it?
3: The two of us are in daily contact, but I've asked the judge to issue a gag order. Loose lips, sink ships. Ladies and gentlemen, next question.
5: Can you describe the plaintiff's state of mind right now?
3: It's optimistic. As you are aware, we're asking the court to issue a writ of protective custody so that Mrs. Dugas' lady parts may be relocated to a safe house and then placed in witness protection.
4: Are you sure this isn't just a publicity stunt?
3: Absolutely not. This is an issue of reproductive organ rights the right to be treated with dignity and not like a carnival ride or the hatchback of a clown car. We're in conversation with some other abused organs like the liver and the lungs about forming a union. We'll report on that later. Thanks for your time.
5: That was attorney Gloria Allred. You're listening to C-SPAN Radio. Coming up next, attorney Greta Van Susteren on her role advocating for Charlie Sheen's embattled nasal passages, liver and frontal lobe. It's... it's...
2: From the beautiful Alberta Rose Theatre in Portland, Oregon, it's live! The show whose organs are revolting as we speak, utterly revolting. Tonight, Christine McKinley of the History Channel's Decoded, reinventing Discovery author Michael Nielsen, and musical guest Crooked Fingers. That's tonight on Live Wire Radio. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Courtney Hommeister. And you also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. Poet Scott Poole with What I Learned Tonight, wherein Scott sits in our audience, and in just one hour, the time it took Elizabeth Barrett Browning to count the ways she loved thee, he writes a poem that encompasses all the lessons he's learned during the show. And, of course, music from our house band, Ralph Huntley and the Mutton Chops. <laughs> Thanks, Ralph. So tonight we have a very sciencey show. Uh, Michael Nielsen will be on to talk about open science and the new era of networked collaboration. And Christine McKinley, who is a mechanical engineer, she's also going to be talking about the gap between boys and girls in high school science and math, which hasn't seen much improvement over the past few years. And this got me thinking about why girls are less likely to go into math and science. According to Science Daily, which I assume is written by a bunch of dudes, a worldwide study was performed in January of 2010 which revealed that stereotypes about girls being inferior in math and science are actually in direct contrast to the actual scientific data. The deal is, girls are just as good at math, and they just have less confidence about it and less of a belief that they'll use it later in their lives. They continue to hold this belief, even as they effortlessly calculate the 35% employee discount and the 6.2% tax on the pair of Kate Spade red licorice slingbacks between questions. (laughs) So it all comes down to confidence, right? Men don't seem to have a problem with confidence. The Wright brothers were confident they could fly, and they did. Evil Knievel was confident he could fly across the Snake River Canyon on a steam-powered rocket. He broke 433 bones over the course of his career. R&B artist R. Kelly apparently believes he can fly. He also believed he could videotape himself with underage girls and get away with it which he kind of did, actually, which is appalling. So I think we can all agree overconfidence is a problem, but overconfidence doesn't really seem to be an issue with many of the women that I know. I actually remember being overconfident in elementary school, tearing around the neighborhood on my lady Schwinn with a banana seat, taking turns too fast and sometimes paying the price. But then I hit puberty, and there was Scott Zimmerman, Prancing around the cafeteria, pulling out the front of his shirt to approximate breasts, mocking me for what? For growing up? And when I think about it now, I'm sure Scott was terrified of me, of what I was turning into, and the mesmerizing power those breasts he was currently mocking would have over him later. (laughs) If Obi-Wan Kenobi had a great pair of breasts, he wouldn't have needed the Force. (laughs) A really nice halter top would have easily convinced those stormtroopers that those weren't the droids they were looking for. (laughs) But at the time, I didn't feel powerful. I felt small and different, and like I wanted Scott Zimmerman to fall down a well into a pool of Scott-eating sharks. But that's beside the point. The point is that study after study shows that this is where the shift in confidence happens for girls around math and science, around adolescence. And there's still a gap in science, as Christine McKinley is going to talk about later, but things are actually looking up overall for girls. A study published by the OECD shows that in the past 15 years, in almost every developed country they surveyed, 15-year-old girls are more confident than boys about getting higher-paying jobs and are ahead of boys in literacy skills. Some say it's because behavioral expectations are higher for girls, because, you know, boys will be boys. So does that mean that following the rules is finally paying off for girls? That the system is actually skewing in girls' favor for the first time? And that when this generation hits their 40s, that men's comb-overs are going to be mussed by some very tastefully beveled glass ceilings? That's yet to be seen, but boys, I would advise you to watch your backs while you're watching our fronts. (laughs) Fingers have been around for 13 years, which is like an eternity in the world of rock. But even before that, Eric Bachman, no relation to Michelle, was the frontman for the influential 90s indie band The Archers of Loaf. That would make him the Sauron from Lord of the Rings or Russell Nash from Highlander of indie rock. Bachman's been busy this year traveling on both a reunion Archers of Loaf tour and a tour of the U.S. and Canada with Crooked Fingers. Here with songs from their most recent record, Breaks in the Armor, please welcome Crooked Fingers to Livewire.
6: I went to see my fortune teller I take my chances on the hustle I cut my losses and keep moving
2: Welcome to the show, Eric. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. Um, You actually just, you you came off the Archers of Loaf reunion tour, and then you jumped right into a Crooked Fingers tour. What was that transition like for you?
7: Well, mostly it's logistics, like you, uh, I have different tunings for that band, for the Archers of Loaf, that I did when I was 23, now I'm 41, so the tunings for this band are different. So a lot of it is just sitting at home for two hours before you go out, oh yeah, that's what I did on this song there, that's what I did on this song. So it's mostly logistics.
2: So did you learn? You, you obviously learned a lot in those 22 years. Did you, did you play some of those songs differently? Uh, well, everyone learns, right? Everyone no, learns in no 22 that, no. years. <laughs>
7: <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't, I don't know. I, uh, I, I don't know. I got less and less confident as I get older. I get less confident. So
2: Really? Yeah. Why, why is that?
7: I just, I don't know, I just feel like a jackass. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, you know. Maybe and you, just cocky. Everybody's cocky when they're young, you know.
2: So. Right, right. Yeah, I guess you you learn all the different ways that you can screw up as you get
7: older. And you do them twice. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> exactly. That's, right. that's it, yep.
2: So just a couple of years ago, you're really active now, but just a couple of years ago, you were actually teaching English in Taiwan.
7: Yeah, so. I did that for, I did that for uh, about six months. What and brought you uh,
2: back to music? Well,
7: I always joke and I, I say uh, it's like... Uh, like when Michael Jordan played, went to play baseball for a while, except I'm not nearly as good as Michael Jordan at anything, you know? Yeah. Because uh, I just, when I was in college, I was going to do that. I was going to go teach ESL overseas, but I got in a band, the Archers, and it did pretty well. So I got lucky enough to fall into that, and I just kind of kept going for 18 years, you know? And so two or three years ago, I was kind of burnt out and thought, oh, let, me, let me do this thing I wanted to do when I was in my 20s, you know? Mm-hmm. And it, it sucked, so. <laughs> <laughs>
2: And when you initially came back, you actually came back to produce other people's records, right? Did you come back to produce Liz's records? I
7: had I had produced outside outside our gates, but I did that before I went overseas. Oh, okay. And I had done uh, different different. I had arranged some stuff for Michael Hansen and done some production for Azure and mm-hmm. a few other things. But so I had been doing that.
2: And before. you actually in 2008, you refused to sign a contract with uh, a label, with a record label, and just went independent.
7: I wouldn't say I, I refused. Uh, it's it's just something I, again I wanted to try it, I mean I I had uh, few few offers I mean you have some offers not as many as you you know if somebody had made the right offer I'm sure I would have taken it but yeah. but I just again I had never done that and I wanted to do that put up my own record in this in this environment but it's not it's not that people say oh now the internet it's, it's a level playing field but it's not because you still need money. To not let people know that your your record's out, you know. Sure, sure, so and to get not, placement, right, yeah, we'll on just, iTunes and ah, yeah, everything, lots of stuff like that. So yeah. it's, it's kind of a m- misleading thing after after having gone through it. I would say be cautious if you're going to do that because it's still you can put it out and no one's going to know, you know, that it's out.
2: Yeah, and you sort of hand picked some record stores right around the country mm, to the, put the record my manager
7: in. at the time, Ben Dickey, through his guidance, he he had and I had relationships with a lot of different record stores. So there were 26 that we. Through him or through myself, we knew personally. We said, "Hey, would you carry the record?" Yeah,
2: so, yeah. So, are you working on another record now, or are you
7: just well? I'm always with this one? songs are always baking in my head, you know. So, I have a bunch of ideas, but not uh, this. We're so busy touring right now that I'm going to try and focus on that, and when I get home, yeah, work on some new stuff.
2: Good. Well, we look forward to that, and you guys are going to come back and sing one more song for we us. We will. Yes. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much, Crooked Fingers, everybody. <laughs> Music tonight brought to you by Dave's Killer Bread and the bread of the week, Good Seed Halo Bagels. What makes it a good seed? To start, it's 100% whole grains and omega-3s, and they're packed with protein. What makes it a bagel? Well, it's bagel-shaped, and you can put stuff on it like cream cheese. It's, It's a bagel. Dave's Killer Bread, making the world a better place. One loaf of bagels at a time.
5: Marriage. It can be an emotional minefield. Many young couples view older married couples with a combination of apprehension and awe.
3: Sometimes it seems like they're communicating without even saying a word. How do they do that?
5: They're using the language of deep (laughs) sighs. Now, with the help of the Burlitz Guide to Deep Sighs and Throat Clearing, you too can express yourself to your spouse without uttering a word. Learn conveniently and comfortably at your own pace while you're on the road or in the gym or at home. You will learn how to translate simple size like
2: <sighs> I can see that you left your dirty socks on the floor of the bedroom again. <sighs> Why is it that you are incapable of loading a dishwasher correctly? <sighs> your children, you put them to bed. <clears throat> I- I'd like to watch Grey's Anatomy now. <clears throat> How do you not know where the salad fork goes? Oh. Seriously? (sighs) I hate your friend Dave, and if you come home trashed with him one more time, I'm leaving you.
5: Immerse yourself in native conversations. (sighs) And learn by repetition. (sighs)
8: Oh. Repeat. ( flash)
4: Oh. Repeat.
8: Um,
5: uh, Repeat. (laughs) Um. Order your copy of this important marital aid now at www.everydayyouwakeupaliveiskillingmeslowly.com. Coming soon, The Burlitz Guide to Eye Rolls and Dismissive Clucking.
2: And Sean McGrath and Andrew Harris with sound effects by David Ian. You're listening to Livewire, the radio variety show for people who simply won't abide listening to any one thing for more than seven minutes. Coming up on Livewire, seven minutes with the History Channel's Christine McKinley, seven more with open science advocate Michael Nielsen, and maybe three more with Crooked Fingers. We'll be right back after one minute. <laughs> In your ears is Christine McKinley. Christine is busy. She is a musician with a career as a solo artist and in the band Dirty Martini. She's an award winning playwright who wrote a musical about Catholicism and physics called Gracie and the Atom. She's a mechanical engineer, and now she's one of three investigators on Brad Meltzer's Decoded on the History Channel. Here with her science study guide for young girls, please welcome Christine McKinley. <laughs>
9: So as, as Corney said, I'm a mechanical engineer, and I'm here tonight to ask for your support because I have nominated myself for an incredibly important position as the national recruiter of girls into science and engineering. There is no such position, but there should be, right? Because in study after study to figure out why girls drop out of math and science, they say over and over it's the lack of mentorship. Here I am. I propose that the National Science Foundation send me on a tour of high schools uh, to encourage girls to pursue technical careers and here's the deal 10 or 20 years ago it was fine that half of the college undergrads wanted to major in communication in French but we do not have time to screw around with that anymore yeah. right because on history channels decoded I interview a lot of experts mostly about how nature is going to kill us so black holes, solar flares, climate change, pandemics, and this is a great one, the de-evolution of the human brain leading to collective psychosis. Yeah, volcanic ash covering the sun so that we have famine, and, and then I go back to, to my hotel in whatever doomed city we happen to be in, and I sit there in the dark in my underwear rocking back and forth, <laughs> shivering with empty bottles from the minibar at my feet, and I think. Nature is coming for us. Because nature, no matter what you've heard, is not sweet and motherly. She's what we call in technical terms, one crazy bitch. She doesn't care who she kills, and that is actually the definition of a sociopath. So what do you do when you're up against a crazy bitch? You read her diary, right? Math is nature's language, and science is her thoughts, and this is what's in her diary, and if we don't understand it, we're doomed. But I don't want to scare the girls of America. That's not a good way to go about it. Uh, So, it'll be more like this. Get all the girls in the cafeteria at the high school. Hey, what's up, ladies? They're gonna think it's sex ed, right? Because it's all girls. And then I'm gonna ask them, so what do you want to be when you grow up? NFL cheerleader. That's awesome. Fashion blogger. Okay. Okay. Radio host. Yeah. Those are super, super ideas. So let's just keep thinking. Um, Yeah. So when I was growing up, I wanted to be the invisible girl. And then I wanted to be mighty Isis. And then the bionic woman. But you need to look at the job market. And um, just think, consider other ideas. So let's brainstorm. Uh, What about agrochemistry? metallurgy, mechanical engineering, and then at that point, most of the girls will stream out of the cafeteria furious, texting angrily OMG, WTF and then D-Y-S-H-S-W-I-S-H or A, which means, did you see her shoes? What is she, Amish? (laughs) And then the five or six girls that remain are the ones I want to talk to. Just get them up close to the close to the front there and just get real with them and just say, ladies, I'm gonna be honest with you. High school is not your moment to shine. (laughs) Doesn't matter, wasn't mine either. I was not what the boys in ninth grade were looking for. And uh, free tip, free tip, telling them that you're in the AP geometry class does nothing to change that. (laughs) Nope, tried it, no good. Holster that one, little sister, you're welcome so what? You aren't hanging out with the cool kids who are throwing up strawberry daiquiris and potted plants at the winter formal, whatever so none of the guys on the football team know your name they will when you're saving their sorry asses from famine and cyber terrorism and fuel shortages they totally will then (laughs) promise you on the flip side I cannot promise that you will grow into your feet but big feet are cool Kind of give you that perpetual adolescent puppy growing into his paws, right? says so's being flat-chested. Should that occur for you in your particular situation? But okay, what do you really want to be good at? Focus on what you want to be good at. Do you want to be good at beer pong or leukemia research? Right? Strip poker or efficient motor design? No, 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 no! Don't answer that. See, that's. That's what we call a rhetorical question. You, trust me, you want to be good at something that matters to the world. The world is counting on you to be different, to be smart, to be curious, and to keep pushing. I mean, look at what I wanted to be when I grew up. Invisible girl. She was on a test flight when she got her power, so strictly that would make her an aeronautic engineer, right? Mighty Isis. She was a science teacher and archaeologist when she hit pay dirt. the bionic woman worked for the office of scientific intelligence they were geeks and late bloomers just like us and then they saved the world just like you will but in real life
8: I'm not a good dancer I'm too shy but now and then I give it a try alone in my bedroom but I am all elbows and knees and anyone can easily see that I don't know how to feel a tune but I'm a strong swimmer in a vicious tide when it gets ugly is when I shine shine Undo calculus But there's one sum I can't solve How Ignorance equals Bliss, like faith Is it just a gift I didn't get I'm too shy But now and then I give it a try alone In my bedroom I'm not a good dancer I'm too shy But now and then I give it a try alone
2: If you've just joined us, you're tuned in to LiveWire Radio, and thanks for listening. And no, you're not experiencing deja vu. It's just summer, and our cast and crew are all oiled up by the pool, so this is a rebroadcast of the show. If you're in the Portland area, our live tapings start again on Saturday, September 8th at the Alberta Rose Theater. You can find more information on those shows and how to help sustain LiveWire's future at LiveWireRadio.org.
4: We interrupt this broadcast for the following public service announcement. We know that while listening to public radio with your children, some topics discussed may lead to awkward questions, like...
8: Why do the Italians hate women? And? Well, we don't have a subprime mortgage loan, do we?
4: But you can't always control what your children are exposed to. And in recent weeks, a new issue has vexed many parents.
8: Mommy, why doesn't Kim Kardashian love her husband anymore?
4: If your children are suffering due to Kim Kardashian's divorce, it's important that you address their concerns and deal head-on with their post-Kardashian divorce trauma. One, make it clear to your children that it's not their fault.
3: It's not your fault, honey. Kim wanted to back out of the wedding, but she felt pressured due to TV obligations and sponsorship deals. Now she knows it's not gonna work out. She and Chris just don't have what it takes to sustain their own series. Two.
4: Your child may be angry at Kim, but it's important that you avoid the blame game.
3: I blame Kim for this! Wait a minute, honey. Now, Kim shouldn't have gone through with it if she was having doubts, but Chris shares some responsibility, okay? If he loved Kim, he would have known that their grotesque size disparity wouldn't play on camera.
4: Three, address looming changes.
3: Now... The network hasn't decided what to do with Courtney and Kim take New York. I mean, hey, remember when Grandma went on that trip to Nebraska and never came back? Yeah. Well, Courtney and Kim might go away like Grandma did.
1: Four,
4: listen to your child. Uh,
8: Mommy, are you and Daddy going to get divorced like Kim and Chris? Mommy?
3: Uh, What, honey, I'm sorry. I'm watching Toddlers in Tiaras.
4: If you suspect that your child may be irreparably damaged by the divorce of Kim Kardashian, watch for the following warning signs.
3: Sleep problems. Poor concentration. Drinking scotch first thing in the morning. Self-injury and eating disorders. Irrational anger at your children for their self-injury and eating disorders. Withdrawal from loved ones. Watching non-Kardashian related programming.
4: If your child exhibits any or all of these symptoms, contact a family therapist. And now back to The Dog Whisperer with Michael
2: Vick. It's Trisha Ferguson and Sean McGrath. Sound effects by David Ian. Our next guest is an essayist. He is an author. He's a pioneer in quantum computing. And he is an enthusiastic advocate of open science. His most recent book, Reinventing Discovery, The New Era of Network Science, posits that we are on the cusp of the most dramatic era in science in 300 years, and it's largely driven by the Internet and a new spirit of collaboration among scientists that's greatly accelerating scientific discovery. He also knows a little bit about quantum gate teleportation, which is a little hobby of mine, so I am dying to ask him about it. Please welcome Michael Nielsen to (laughs) LiveWire. welcome to live wire michael
1: uh, it's great to be here, Courtney.
2: Yeah, it's great to have you. So uh, I really feel like this book, hopefully this book is about the future of science.
1: Indeed. Yeah.
2: And uh, what I was hoping was uh, if you could talk about, uh, talk a little bit about the, the past and how science has worked in the past to give people kind of a framework for what you're talking about in terms of change.
1: So what, what kind of things are you interested in for the past? Exactly. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a big subject. Right?
2: Oh, well, just uh, <laughs> in terms of, I guess, in terms of research how it currently works, how it works without network science.
1: Right. So sort of, you know, a lot of it is done one scientist uh, in the lab, uh, working on their own, uh, kind of the locked away in the ivory tower kind of a model, um, working very hard, often for years at a time, and then finally, you know, releasing news of their discovery uh, to the world.
2: Via usually a paper or a journal? Usually a paper,
1: yeah. That's kind of, you know, you you work away and you release your magnum opus two or three years later.
2: Right. Right. So can you talk about the, the polymath project? That's really the opening story of the book, and I think it explains really well.
1: Yeah, so this is a project that uh, was run by a mathematician at Cambridge University, a, a mathematician in his late 40s named Tim Gowers. He's actually one of the world's top mathematicians. He's a fields medalist. It's kind of like the Nobel Prize. But he's also a blogger, a um, blogger kind of maybe not your your standard image of a blogger. Right. And uh, he decided to uh, attack a really difficult, unsolved mathematical problem on his blog in the open and actually to invite anybody in the world who had an idea to contribute to uh, come along and and write it down in the comment section of his blog. So, yeah.
2: And what happened once once he threw that question out?
1: Well, actually, at at first, absolutely nothing. Right? (laughs) So... uh, I'm not sure quite what he was expecting or hoping for, but for the first seven hours, dead silence. Um, And then, actually, a a mathematician just made a a, from uh, Vancouver made a short comment. And uh, 15 minutes after that, a high school teacher jumped in and said, oh, here's an idea. And then three minutes after that, uh, somebody else, actually another Fields Medal-winning mathematician, jumped in. And at that point, things just kind of exploded. Um, You know, it was was very hard to keep up just reading uh, how quickly people were... We're making suggestions.
2: Well, and he didn't just solve that problem, right? They actually solved either a more complex problem or, or they actually moved even further forward than he was hoping, right?
1: Yeah, so they, uh, they solved a generalization of the original problem and, uh, I mean, very rapidly, at least, well, in, you know, 37 days is about how long it took, which for that kind of problem is actually very, very fast. He, he had a nice way of describing it. Uh, He said that the polymath process is to ordinary research as driving is to pushing a car.
2: Right, so (laughs) you move a little bit faster.
1: I've actually pushed a car up the freeway before, and uh, I have some idea (laughs) of what that feels like.
2: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) When you told that story, there were a lot of hardcore mathematicians, as you said, Fields Medal winners, involved in that process. But you also talk about uh, a project called the Galaxy Zoo, which actually uses volunteers from the internet who aren't scientists. What are some of the benefits of just taking information and help from regular people?
1: Well, actually, even in the polymath project, it was kind of all levels. You know, you do have your high school teacher and you have your top mathematicians. But but Galaxy Zoo um, started with this guy, a grad student at Oxford, who uh, he wanted to classify galaxy images. There are these big robotic telescopes that have taken millions of images and they kind of you know, sit in a stack. Nobody's ever looked at them. And so he, uh, he spent a week classifying 50,000 of them as either spiral or elliptical. And at the end of the week, he wanted never to look at a galaxy again, um, kind of obvious reasons. And they decided to do this crowdsourcing experiment. They put all, you know, all these millions of images up online. They've had 250,000 people have done 150 million galaxy classifications. And just
2: from this project. Just
1: from this project. And they've made all kinds of amazing discoveries along the way, including, I mean, some of the, the individuals who you'd never think would...
2: Uh, right, a there discovery. was a, a woman who discovered a cluster. That's of- right.
1: So uh, you're thinking of Hanny? Is this the person I think so, think yeah. Of? Yeah, so uh, she's a, a school teacher. Um, she's 26. I guess she's 27 or 28 now. Um, and she was just looking at one of these things and noticed there was this funny... Green splodge below one of the galaxies, and she said, Well, wh- what is this and It turned out that none of the professional astronomers had the faintest clue uh, what she was seeing. They thought it might even be like a defect or something in the in the picture and uh, actually, it turns out that it 's an entirely new type of, of astrophysical object it 's tens of thousands of light years in diameter, absolutely huge, and right. it 's kind of a mirror for quasar light. <laughs> yeah.
2: So, sure, right, it's a quasar light mirror.
1: I mean, that's what everybody does, right, over there. Absolutely. It was in August, it was over the summer vacation. Exactly. That's what you do.
2: No, I bought one of those at Pottery Barn, and I have to tell you, they work much better than, like, the...
1: I, I regular mirrors
2: too. yeah so so when something like this happens like there, you tell this wonderful story about galileo yeah. in the book uh-huh. um uh, it's sort of about how competitive scientists are
1: yeah actually i mean this is pretty extreme although it wasn't uncommon at the time um so he uh, very early on he takes his telescope points it at saturn what's he expecting to see he's expecting to see a little disc, because that's what he's seen when he's looked at the other planets, and uh, what he sees instead is these two little bumps on either side of Saturn. He knows this is, like, huge as a discovery. It's hard to appreciate now, but at the time, it was, like, one of the the first changes in millennia in our uh, understanding of of the sky. And uh, he doesn't tell everybody this. Instead, he writes down a description in his notes of what he's seen, and he scrambles the letters into an anagram and sends it off to a bunch of his astronomer colleagues, and the reason he does this is so that if, say, if one of them makes the same discovery, he can reveal the anagram and get the credit.
2: Because he saw it first.
1: But in the meantime, he hasn't said anything at all.
2: And he can continue his research and try to find more, perhaps.
1: Yeah, and this was really really pretty common at the time.
2: So, but, but it seems to me, you know, and we hear stories about, you know, uh, about, about scientists sort of in competition for who discovered something first all the time. So in a situation like that, how do, how do scientists feel about a school teacher discovering something that, that they hadn't discovered?
1: Actually, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I haven't asked about that particular uh, discovery. I guess a lot of them feel it's pretty cool because there's a whole bunch of follow-up papers. Yeah. Um, She's an author on several of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, uh, certainly, when I talk to, for example, when I talk often to, uh, say, cancer researchers um, privately, they'll often express a lot of dismay. They'll feel like there's a lot of information they could be sharing with other cancer researchers, but they just can't. Uh, because it's so competitive, right? And and as a result, there's I mean potentially all sorts of discoveries that are not being made.
2: Well, and it, all, it feels particularly in things like cancer research that this should be happening, right? If it speeds things up so so much, but but this brings up a question. And you had this quote in the book um, about coders: good programmers code, great programmers reuse other people's code. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it just made me think because a lot of things that people program make money. So if there is this collaborative thing. And if someone discovers something or creates something that all these people have helped with, what happens? If it's, if it make, if it's a money-making thing, how do they figure out?
1: I, I can't resist interjecting that actually that quote is stolen from Pablo Picasso, who said it about painting, <laughs> who, who stole it from T.S. Eliot, who said it about writing. Which, <laughs> oh, it somehow seems very appropriate. That's great. Um, uh, they, they keep adapting it. Anyway, um, well, I mean... That's a, obviously a, a, a huge question. Um, when there's a whole lot of private interests involved, say, pharmaceutical companies, things like that, um, it does become very complicated. Certainly for a, a huge part of, of science, though, um, I, you know, I was talking about astronomy before, it's really not that complicated. Um, you know, if you're talking about you know, the, the will to share data and, and whatnot, that just, just can come from individual scientists, potentially. Once you start getting patents and things like this uh, into play, um, it does get a little bit more complicated. There are some people, particularly some open chemists. These are people who have, like, patent portfolios and things like this. And they've been working really hard to figure out what bits of their research need to be hived off and kept secret. And they've been really aggressive with putting all the rest of it out in the open. So that's actually... I mean, that's kind of a nice nice little story uh, of people... Trying to work the right way, but it's it's very uncommon. You know, I'm talking about a, f- a handful of people in the world.
2: Yeah, so they get help where they need it, and they protect what they need to protect. That's
1: right. Yeah.
2: What are some of the roadblocks to this idea?
1: I think, I mean, the publish or perish system that says uh, if, if you're a scientist, uh, the way you make your, your your dough, basically, the way you build your reputation, is by publishing papers and not by doing anything else. It's not by, say, sharing your data with other scientists. If you have important uh, genetic data, for example, um, one scientist of my acquaintance, who he likes to share stuff as much as possible, but he said he'd been sitting on a genome for an entire year. right? This is sitting on his hard disk. It's for a whole species of life, I should say, and it's just sitting there, right, because there's no reason for him to make this more broadly available.
2: What, why isn't there a reason? Why wouldn't people want to know about this? So,
1: I mean, certainly other people would want to know about it, but what's, well, actually, it's not so much what's in it for him, it's his collaborators don't want him to, uh, the, the people who he's work, directly working with. They don't want that uh, information out there. It'll just help their competitors, right. and they've still got analyses they'd like to run. And, and you know, the concrete sort of you know, what this means is that maybe there's proteins in there that we've never discovered, and maybe they're the basis for therapies or things like that. That's, that's the real right. impact.
2: So it does. It seems, to me, it seems to me from the things that you said that competition might be the roughest roadblock to get past. And, and that seems like it's been going on, as you said, since Galileo. So Indeed. Yeah, it yeah. might be a little difficult nut to crack, Michael. Um, we, but we, we believe that you can do
1: it. Uh, um, <laughs> it, one of the things one of the not, you, not you, tonight you, I Yeah,
2: I did you told this great story in the book about Einstein running up against a problem that actually went beyond the scope of his expertise and yeah. it was funny because I I didn't I couldn't think of Einstein not knowing something but what do you think Einstein could have could have gotten done had he been around for network science
1: That's an interesting question. It's not one I've certainly not one I've thought about it at all before. He was a he was actually a pretty social kind of a guy. Um, and I suspect that he would, he would, actually, he wasn't just a pretty social kind of a guy, but, but certainly when he was in his twenties, he was very adventurous in a whole lot of ways, not just actually in his science, but actually in, in a lot of aspects. Of Hairstyles. Um, that, I think, <laughs> I think, I think, I think that actually came later. Did it? Uh, yeah. Did it? <laughs> and also the mismatched socks came right. a little bit later in life. Uh, but, uh, uh. Yeah, it's definitely. Uh, I think you probably would have been an innovator, actually. Uh, here and, and very sure. excited.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, the book is fascinating. The book is "Reinventing Discovery: The New Era of Networked Science." The author is Michael Nielsen. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks, Courtney. <laughs>
2: You're listening to LiveWire right now, and we appreciate it. If you have a show and would like us to listen to it, we will be happy to. It's a two-way street, people. We'll be right back.
4: Enters its third week. But just because players and owners haven't come to an agreement to get the season underway doesn't mean we can't have fun, right? With me, as always, is my broadcast partner, Mel the Doc Stockton. Great to be here, Kev. Looking forward to another night packed with non
5: NBA action.
4: Right, you are, as the arena keeps looking for new and exciting ways to fill these 20,000 seats. In the wake of the suspended season. First up
5: tonight, we've got the Dizzy Sprints. Gotta
4: love the Dizzy Sprints, Mel. Who needs Kobe Bryant and LeBron James when we got two drunk guys plucked from the crowd, spinning around
5: a baseball bat? A cornerstone of any lousy company picnic, but what else are we gonna watch, right? Right, you are, Mel. After that, Zumi, a very
4: talented golden retriever, will run down the court. Weaving in between little
5: cones Zumi's got some hip and breathing problems Mm -hmm. But boy, she sure does try her little heart out And a little bit later We're going to put a marriage proposal up on the jumbo screen
4: (laughs) As local pizza delivery man Brian Faradell pops a question to his unsuspecting girlfriend Uh, I hope we get a yes this time, Kip Sure are overdue, aren't we? Getting pretty depressing Also remind you folks at home that, like always, our
5: crowd is comprised of natural disaster refugees. That's right, Kip. Thanks to NBA partner FEMA, this area is jam-packed every night with people who were forcibly evacuated from their homes due to flooding, mist, fog, a slight drizzle, or dusk. Even the slightest weather
4: condition ensures that this stadium maintains prime attendance for the duration of the lockout.
5: <laughs> These folks aren't too happy about the $7 bottled water, though, kid. No, they aren't, Mel.
4: Let's hope some donkey basketball
5: cheers them up, because that's coming up in about an hour. Who needs alley-oop slam dunks when we have little people riding Mexican donkeys chucking air balls? Not me, Mel. Plus, a little bit later, we got Toddler Water Polo, a live
4: performance from the Spin Doctors, remember them? and modern dance from the all-women New Age dance troupe Xenopause. (laughs) we are lucky to
5: have them. They are fantastic. They sure
4: inspired me last time. Plus, we'll have some dudes with t-shirt cannons roaming the stands. Hey, free t-shirts. That sounds great. Uh, not quite, Mel. Due to the rampant head lice outbreak, the t-shirt cannons will be firing sample-sized bottles of prescription RID into the stands.
5: Well, you got to keep those heads clean, Kip. I love this
4: game, Mel. Oh, that air horn either means we're starting the dizzy sprints or another concession stand has been set on fire. Either way, we'll be covering it because, hey, what the hell else are we going to do? Stay tuned, folks.
2: Once again, crooked fingers. To sum it all up for us with a poem he finished writing about thirty seconds ago, please welcome poet Scott Poole.
10: What I learned tonight by Scott Poole I learned tonight I don't think someone should have a reality show if they have 19 children. That's not reality. I can't believe those are real kids. I think they're stunt kids or something. Anyway, something is stunt somewhere in that birthing scenario. I don't think the conversations on that show are the Duggars' real conversations. I imagine they're real conversations. Let me paraphrase. Translation. If Jason, Tibble, Skippy, I don't know what to name the damn thing, Ina, Doopy, Laverne, Shirley, Squiggy, Charlie, or Sheen don't put away their dishes, I'm going to kick their little. <laughs> Where's the Xanax? <laughs> yeah! Stop, don't, blub. <laughs> 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 Can we sell some of these kids for more Xanax? (laughs) To get on a reality show, you should have to watch the Duggar kids for a week. We should have a reality show like this to encourage girls to get into science. I'd start the show with a crooked fingers song and everyone bouncing around waving flags with test tubes on them. Waving a flag at a tree, waving a flag at a donkey playing basketball, waving a flag at a housewife on the internet finding a green splotch that's actually a mirror for quasars. Waving a flag at a guy waving a flag at the Duggar kids waving flags at other Duggar kids waving flags at little kittens waving flags with portraits of astrophysicists shaved in their sides. (laughs) But as I was saying, the show would be about science, and I would invite the world's top women scientists to do experiments. The only requirements would be that it include the Duggar children, Kim Kardashian, quantum mechanics in the term, Did You See Those Shoes? What is she, Amish? (laughs) And as I was saying, it would encourage girls to get into science. Remember when the bionic woman woke up with her new bionics and it totally freaked her out like the members of Xenopause and she ran in really slow motion for about five feet which took five minutes into a phone booth and totally freaking destroyed it? There would be none of that. That's not reality.
2: So much for listening. Our thanks to our guests. Tonight, Christine McKinley, Michael Nielsen, and Crooked Fingers. The mutton Chops are Ralph Huntley, Reed Wallsmith, and Jim Brunberg. Tonight's show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Dave's Killer Bread, and Burgerville, introducing Burgerville Radio. Featuring music from Northwest musicians in all their restaurants. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners like you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the hotel. Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. The Faces for Radio Theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hommeister. Performers Andrew Harris and Trisha Ferguson with sound effects by David Ian. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse, house poet Scott Poole, and Chelsea Kane. Faces for Radio Theater is directed by Jason Rouse. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom with house sound by Scott McLeod. Production management by Drew Flint. Thank you to Rose City Sound. Show theme by Courtney Bondrele and Ralph Huntley. Our show photographer is Jenny Baker. LiveWire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about LiveWire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit LiveWireRadio.org.
0: Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of LiveWire delivered?